You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here worshiping with us this morning. We are going to be continuing our study of the book of Hebrews. So you can open with me in your Bibles to the New Testament book, the letter to the Hebrews. We like to go through entire books of the Bible verse by verse, and so it's great if you have a Bible to follow along with. Well, today is the second Sunday in Advent, which Advent, by the way, is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. This is a time when Christians have traditionally focused their hearts and their minds on the coming of Jesus into the world and what that means for us. And so this is a very fitting thing that we are studying right now in the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, the book of Hebrews is all about who Jesus is and what his coming into the world means for for us and how he gives us a hope which is an anchor for our souls. So we're going to begin this morning by reading our text which comes from Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to we're going to look at the whole chapter today, but for our reading this morning we're going to start with verse 17 to the end. It is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message that you are our priest and our king. And I pray that as we study your word today, that the things which it says, Lord, that we would understand them in our minds and that they would sink down into our hearts or that they would change the way we think, they would change the way that we feel, they would change the way that we live. Lord, may you do a transforming work in our lives as we study your work this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you have ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? It came out like 18 years ago. So if you haven't seen it by now, that's kind of on you. So I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going to tell you the end of the movie. But again, I don't feel bad because if, if it took you 18 years to see the movie, probably, you know, you should know what happens at the end. Okay, so here's what the movie is about. It's about this boy who sees dead people, right? He sees ghosts. And nobody else can see them, but he can. And so in the movie, what happens is this boy starts meeting with a psychologist who's kind of helping him out and trying to help him get to the root of the issue why he's seeing these ghosts. And that character is played by Bruce Willis. But at the end of the movie, you realize something. Here's your big spoiler. At the end of the movie, here's what you realize. That all along, Bruce Willis, the psychologist, he was a ghost too, right? Like, whoa. And, uh, and when you come to realize that, it totally changes everything. Like, it totally changes how you understand everything that happened up until that point in the movie. And you're like, 
wait a second, I, I need to go back and I need to watch this entire thing all over again because this new information changes how I see this entire movie. Because, and then when you watch it again, you watch it with this whole new perspective where you know this information that Bruce Willis is actually dead. He's a ghost the whole time. And then you notice things that you didn't notice the first time you watched the movie. Right? Like, for example, no one in the movie ever talks to Bruce Willis except for the boy. And not only that, no one ever looks at Bruce Willis except for the boy. Now, you don't notice that the first time you're going through the movie. Um, you just overlook it you don't don't realize that it's there but when you know this information then you go back and you watch the movie and you see things that you hadn't noticed before let me tell you this the bible is a whole lot like that it's exactly like that actually if you were to pick up the bible and start reading on page one chapter one page one in the book of genesis the very first book of the bible starting with what we call the old testament which is the the first 39 books of the bible which were written before jesus came into the world if you were to start there and just read through the Old Testament, you would read a whole lot of stories that would leave you with a lot more questions than they give you answers. You'd read stories and you'd be like, okay, well, I guess that happened. I don't really know why it happened. and I guess it was there for a reason. I don't know what the reason is. It's kind of interesting, sometimes kind of weird, but I'll just keep reading and assume that that story's in here for some reason, even though I don't know what the reason is. And then something happens. You read this story, you got all these questions, nothing totally makes sense, but you, you kind of got a grasp on, okay, this is, must be how things work. And then something happens. Jesus is born, and he lives this incredible life. And then he's executed by the, the religious and the governmental authorities, this horrific death by nailing him to two pieces of wood stuck in the ground so that he's hanging from these, uh, this cross. And then incredibly... And miraculously, he rises from the dead in a way that's irrefutable, even by those who didn't want him around. And after his resurrection, we read that Jesus, after he dies, he resurrects from the dead. Then Jesus, we read, he goes and he meets with his disciples. And as you can imagine, they were pretty surprised to see him. And Jesus says this to him in one place. This is found in the Gospel of Luke. It tells this story. Here's what Jesus says to them. He says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now check this out. This is cool. And beginning with Moses and the, all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. And then it says that they had a meal later on, and it says this. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Check this out. That everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This was one of those moments like in the sixth sense, right? When you get to the end and you realize that this information that changes everything and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to go back and I have to read this entire thing all over again because I'm going to read it with completely different eyes. Now that I know this, this thing, this information, I realize that everything that was written was building up to and it was pointing to Jesus. See, we call this, what we call this is the interpretive key. If you have the interpretive key, then you can suddenly understand things that didn't make sense before. And what Jesus is saying is that the interpretive key, the key to the Old Testament is him. He's the key to understanding it. He's the only one in whom it makes sense. 
All of it is about him. Everything in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, it was all about him. And what that means is that you can never really understand the Old Testament until you understand that it's all pointing to Jesus, the one whom God sent to meet our greatest need, to be the savior of our souls and the savior of the world. And once you understand that the Old Testament, everything that's written before Jesus was all leading up to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, picturing and prefiguring Jesus, now you read the Old Testament with totally new eyes and you look for those ways that it's pointing to him. And when the early Christians studied the Bible, guess what they were studying? They were studying the Old Testament. The apostles would get these guys together and they would open up the Old Testament and they would show them what Jesus had shown to them and how the Old Testament all along had been pointing to and speaking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that is the big theme of the book of Hebrews, by the way. It's a big theme of the book of Hebrews, particularly this section that we're looking at today. See, this letter, just for some context, it was written to Jewish people who had become Christians in the first century. And as a result of them becoming Christians, their lives had not gotten easier, quite the opposite. They were experiencing pressure from people in their community, that Jewish community. This would mean their family, their friends, people they worked with, basically everyone who mattered to them in their whole life. And they were receiving all this pressure from these people to quit Christianity and return to Judaism. For some of these people, becoming a Christian had meant alienation from their families. For others of them, it meant problems for them at work. And, and for others, it even meant literal persecution from religious extremists who didn't like Christianity, wanted to see it done away with. And as a result, many of these Jewish Christians were feeling tempted at this time to, to do that, to actually give in to the pressure and take a step back from Christianity and maybe even go back to Judaism. And this letter is written as an urgent appeal to these people to hold fast to Jesus, to not give up on Jesus, even in the midst of their difficulties. And the reason is this, because Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to be the Savior that you need. Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to be the Savior that you need. The, the Bible puts it this way, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And let me tell you this, that wasn't only true for them. That's true for us today as well. And so no matter what it might cost you, we must hold fast to Jesus. And the way that we find encouragement in the midst of our difficulty, the encouragement to keep going, is by fixing our eyes on Jesus and what he did for us, who he is and what he's done for us. In order to help us see that Jesus is alone, uniquely qualified to be the Savior that we need, the writer in this chapter, chapter 7, shows us three things. That's what we're going to look at just now. He shows us three things. First of all, he shows us a curious character. Secondly, he shows us that you are frustrated, but by design. And thirdly, he shows us the answer to all the riddles. So a curious character, you're frustrated by design. And the answer to all the riddles. So the curious character, and this is the first ten verses here. The writer begins this section by bringing up a story from way back in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's kind of an obscure story. And so here's what he says in the, in the very first verse of this chapter. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. Have you ever read a book or, or watched a movie and a character is introduced kind of towards the beginning of the story and then just kind of disappears, you don't hear from him again until like the very end when it turns out that that character was the key to unraveling and understanding the mystery. Well, that's kind of like what we have with this guy Melchizedek. In 
Genesis chapter 14, right at the beginning of the Bible, we read about how Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the father of faith, he meets this guy named Melchizedek, and we're told that he's the priest of the Most High God. And this priest blesses Abraham, and he administers to him a sacred ceremonial meal, a religious observance which consists of bread and wine. Kind of interesting, right? Sounds familiar to something that Jesus did. And then Abraham gives this priest a tithe, which is 10% of his wealth, 10% of everything that he has. Now, there's so many questions surrounding this person. Like, first of all, who is he? Where did he come from? How did he become a priest? Because it kind of seems like Abraham's the only person who knows God and is following God at this point. How is it that there's suddenly a priest who blesses and, and serves Abraham? And the writer of the Hebrews says, Okay, I want you to think about this guy for a second. Just slow down. Take a second. Let's think about it. His name, Melchizedek. What does that mean? Melchizedek. It literally means king of righteousness. Okay, and then the city that he's king over is the city of Salem. Salem being the word for peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's also the king of peace. Are those titles ringing any bells for you? Are you, are you starting to pick up what he's putting down? Well, let's see what else we can learn about this guy. Verse 3, it says that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now, there are a few things that all of us have in common. We all had biological parents. Even if you didn't meet them, you had biological parents. And the second thing that we all have in common is that one day we're all going to die. So we all had parents and we're all going to die. And yet this guy mysteriously didn't have either of those things. He didn't have parents, and, he, and he's never going to die. And so there's the key here is understanding this. It says he is resembling the Son of God. In other words, Melchizedek is a picture. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's a preview of coming attractions. He just flashes onto the screen for a moment, and then he disappears. And you read Genesis, and you're kind of like, whoa, that was weird. Like, what was up with that? But no explanations given whatsoever. In verse 4 through 10 here in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, the writer says this. Think about the implications of what happened. It wasn't Abraham who blessed Melchizedek. It was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham. And then he says, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Now later on, the Israelites were required to give a tithe, 10% of their income, to the priests who served them in the priestly matters. But this happened before that priesthood was ever created. And so the implication that he's bringing out here is this. Melchizedek, therefore, was greater than Abraham, and Melchizedek preceded the Jewish priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and he was greater than the Levitical priesthood. So who is this person? Now, see, the Bible tells us something interesting about Jesus. It tells us that before the very first Christmas, right, before that time when Jesus was born as a baby, in, in placed in that manger in the city of Bethlehem, that Jesus existed from eternity past. In places like the Gospel of John chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1, we read how Jesus was with the Father, and Jesus and the Father together with the Holy Spirit are God. There's one God in three persons. It's what we call the Trinity. And there are several examples in the Old Testament where we read about how God appeared to people in human form, 
And yet, the Bible says that no one has ever seen God, right? And it says this, but here's what it says. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now just try to wrap your mind around that for a second. It says this in Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? What it means is that Jesus is God made visible to us. So whenever God appeared in our dimensions in a form visible to us, that was an appearance of Jesus before Christmas, before his ultimate coming in Bethlehem that first Christmas. And so Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the one who is greater than Abraham, the one who is an eternal priest with no beginning and no end. This is one of those passages that Jesus would have pointed to on that day when he met his disciples in that room and he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and he walked them through the Old Testament and showed them all the things about himself. And he would have said, hey, do you guys remember this one? Remember Melchizedek? Come on now. King of righteousness, really? King of peace? Come on, you know what I'm saying. Abraham bowed down to him. He received a blessing. Come on, and they're like, wait a second, that was you? And he's like, yeah, that was me. And they're like, oh my gosh. Like, that finally makes sense. Like, my whole life, I've always been so confused about that story. And now it finally makes sense. You see, but there's something else about Melchizedek that's really interesting. Melchizedek is the only example in the Bible of someone who is both a king and a priest. Both a king and a priest. Now, in the Jewish system, no one could ever be both a king and a priest. And there were two reasons for that. The first reason was a technical reason, and the second reason was a practical reason. So the, the technical reason why no one could be both a king and a priest at the same time is because kings descended from the tribe of Judah, whereas priests descended from the tribe of Levi. And so you you had to be one or the other. You couldn't be both. That's actually mentioned, by the way, in our text from verses 11 to 14, this whole issue of how kings come from Judah and priests come from Levi. And so this would have actually been an objection that a Jewish person might have had to the concept that Jesus is our high priest. They would have said, okay, wait, but if Jesus is the Messiah then he can't be a priest because the Messiah was a king from the line of David, and therefore he couldn't also be a priest descended from Levi. So there was that technical reason why you couldn't be both a priest and a king. But there was also a practical reason, and the practical reason is because the roles of king and priest do two very different functions, and, and that's this. The role of a king is to be God's instrument for justice and order in a society. You can read about this, for example, in Romans chapter 13, where it says this, that the ruling authorities have been put in place by God as his instruments for justice and order. In other words, their job is to enforce the laws and to punish those who break the laws. On the other hand, the job of a priest is to advocate for those who have done wrong, those who have sinned and broken the law, and to plead for them to receive mercy instead of judgment. And so you see what I'm saying? Practically, you couldn't do both those jobs. The one is about enforcing justice. The other is about pleading for mercy. You see, it would create a conflict of interest for you to have both of those jobs. And yet, here is this person, Melchizedek. He's both the king of Salem 
and the priest of the Most High God. And he lived before the law. He lived before the Levitical priesthood and before any of the tribes ever existed. And in this way, he is a picture, he's a foreshadowing of who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do, both as a king and a priest. Now, let's go on to the next section, which is that you are frustrated by design. So in regard to this Jewish religious system of priests and sacrifices and ceremonies and rules and regulations and laws, check out what it says in verse 11. It says this, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? What's he talking about here? Now look down at verse 17. It kind of, kind of all comes together. The writer there in verse 17 is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, the psalm writer, who is David, King David, he is prophesying about the Messiah, this Savior who God promised to bring into the world. And he says, I will bring another priest, a priest who is not after the order of the Levites and Aaron, but a priest who is after the order of Melchizedek, and he will be a priest forever. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is this. He's asking a question. Why would God do that? If the Levitical priesthood was good enough as it was, then why would God bring another priest from outside of that system to be the true and ultimate priest who would last forever? And he says this. The answer is this. Because the Levitical priesthood was not good enough. It was not good enough. And he says in verse 19, the law could not make anything perfect. Now this brings up a lot of questions, right? You've got to say, well, wait a second. If you're telling me, if he's saying here that the Levitical priesthood was not good enough, well, wasn't it God who gave them the Levitical priesthood in the first place? Like if this priesthood was insufficient to do what the people needed it to do, wasn't it God who gave that to them in the first place? Why would God give them a flawed system or an insufficient system? Didn't God know that it was an insufficient system? And if so, why did he give it to them? And the answer is, yes, God knew it was a system that had limitations, that it could only take them so far. And that's why he promised that one day he would send them another priest, a true priest, after the order of Melchizedek, one who would be a priest forever, one who would be both a king and a priest, the Messiah, the Savior. And it was actually by design, in other words, that God gave them a system which had limitations, which would, which would leave them not with what they ultimately needed, but would leave them really actually frustrated. All of us, I'll tell you this, every single one of us, for example, we cannot shake our sense of defilement. Every religion in the world deals with this because it's common to all human beings. How do we get over this sense of, that there's defilement in us, that we have been stained. This world we live in, the things that we see with our eyes, even the things that we do ourselves, they leave us with this feeling that we are defiled, that we are dirty. And the question is, how do we get clean again? And not just on the outside, right? Like a lot of religions and systems that give you ceremonial cleansings, but, but that only cleans you on the outside. How do you wash your brain? How do you wash your mind? How do you cleanse your soul? When it comes to morality... All of us want to be good, right? Even you meet people who have committed crimes, and they'll always tell you, 
you know what, I'm a good person. We want to be good. We want to be accepted. We want to be approved of by God. But none of us live up to God's perfect standards all the time. And actually, to make it even worse, it's not only that we don't live up to God's standards and God's requirements of us, we can't even live up to our own standards and requirements of how somebody should live. Author Francis Schaeffer, he uses this example to illustrate this point. He says this, Imagine if everybody, imagine if everybody in the world had to wear a recording device around their neck and it would start recording every time you said the words ought to or should have. In other words, it only records the things that you say that people should do or ought to do. In other words, what you believe to be the, the standards for proper human behavior. Not God's standards, not any religion's standards, just your standards for what you think is right and wrong and what people should and shouldn't do. And he says, if everybody had to wear this recording device, and then on judgment day, God would call you forward, you stand before God, and God would take that recording device off of your neck, and he would play it back for you, and he'd say, okay, I'm going to be really generous with you. I'm not going to judge you according to the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to judge you according to my standards. I'm not even going to judge you by the standards of any religion in the world. I'm only going to judge you by the standards of what you said is right and wrong and what you said that people should and shouldn't do. And it says, he says, if God were to do that, none of us would pass that test. See, none of us, it's not only that we don't live up to God's requirements, we don't even live up to our own standards. You see, the problem with it isn't the standard. The problem isn't with the morals. The problem is with us. And, and it's worse because we know that we're unclean, and yet we don't know what to do to fix it. We don't know what to do to fix it. And so God said, I'm going to give you a system. So God gives them the system to become clean, to become right with him. But it's only a temporary fix. It's only a, a, a half measure, so to say, a temporary fix. This system, it only provided temporary relief. God said, okay, but here's why. Because one day I'm going to send you a true priest and he will make the true sacrifice in order to cleanse you from all of your defilement once and for all, in order to make you right with me for good. But still, you might ask the question, okay, but why did God give them a system which could only give them temporary relief? And the purpose was this, to lead them to this place, this place of realization and even frustration where they realize that they can't do it on their own, that you need something which you can't get yourself, that you need an act of God. Only God can intervene on your behalf and do it for you. You know that this is true in your life as well. We read this in Romans chapter 8. The Bible tells us this. For the creation was subjected to futility. Subjected to futility. But not willingly. It wasn't our choice. We didn't choose to be subjected to futility. But it was because of him who subjected it in hope. Who's that talking about? It's talking about God. That God, in other words, subjected us to this sense of frustration in hope. And he had a good reason for it. We'll talk about what that was in a second. What's saying is that all of us have this nagging sense of frustration in our lives and in this world. And that's not by accident. It was actually designed by God. We live in a world where things break, where things that we feel like it should be easy, it should work, and then it doesn't. Things don't always work the way that they're supposed to. Even our own bodies, they break down. They don't work the way they're supposed to. And we spend our whole lives longing for things and chasing after things that we can never seem to take hold of. And even if we do take hold of it, even for just a moment, in the instant, it, it just lasts for a minute and it's gone. You can't hold on to it. 
Success doesn't last. Relationships don't last. Good health doesn't last. And we often think these kind of thoughts like, when I reach that next level in my career, or when I reach that next stage financially, or when I finally get that thing that I've been wanting to get for a long time, that'll be it. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be okay. And then you get it, and you obtain it. And it's not nearly as fulfilling as you thought it would be. I watched this documentary the other night about this young comedian who was trying to break into the comedy industry. And at the end of the movie, so it follows him from just, you know, really starting out. And it follows him, and he actually becomes successful. And he makes this, this big comedy festival. He even gets a pilot for a TV show. And he says at the end of the movie, he says, I did it. I got everything that I ever wanted and I'm more miserable and unhappy than I've ever been in my entire life. The Bible describes this as chasing after the wind. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the king of Israel, he tells the story of how he did this, how he chased after the wind, how he tried to fill that sense of emptiness and frustration in his life, which all of us feel. And, and he says, he sought it in a lot of different ways. He said he started out by seeking it in women in pleasure, in relationships. And so he married over a thousand of the most beautiful women that he could find. But he found that that didn't fill the void in his life. He still felt empty at night when he laid in bed alone. And so instead he said, okay, okay, it's not women that I need. It's partying. I need to just have a good time. I need to be entertained. I need to have a lot of people around me, have a lot of fun. And so he threw elaborate parties. He even imported exotic animals, baboons and peacocks. But after a couple of years of partying, he was still empty inside. And he said, you know what? I know what it is. It's not partying. It's not relationships with women. It's power. That's what I need. I need to be powerful. And so he built up the military, and he conquered the surrounding nations, and he built an empire, but he was still empty inside. So he turned to philosophy and, and knowledge and learning, but that didn't fill the void in his life either. And so then he tried money. If I work hard, if I get money, if I reach that next stage financially, then I'll be happy. And it says that he collected so much money that he literally didn't know what to do with it all. And then he realized this too is vanity. And he said everything is vanity. He was the, one of the only people in history who had the means to do everything and get everything that people think. If I only had that then I'd be happy, then I'd be okay, then I'd be satisfied. He had it all, and yet none of it could fill the void in his soul. The point of the book of Ecclesiastes is that nothing in this world will ever satisfy you. Life is frustrating, and some people say, that's depressing. And you say, well, yeah, but isn't it a message that we need to hear? I mean, especially at this time of the year, right, when, when the stores are full of people buying more stuff. The book of Ecclesiastes brings up this problem. But then here's the thing about Ecclesiastes that a lot of people don't get. They're waiting for the conclusion. They're waiting for the fix. They're waiting for the solution. But the book doesn't give you a solution. It's one of those, it's like those frustrating people who only bring up a problem and then don't give you any way to fix the problem. Super frustrating, right? Like you're already frustrated. Then you read this book and it just makes you more frustrated. And you're like, ah. And so this frustration, though, I want you to see this. It's actually by design. As human beings, here's the thing. We were created for perfection. We come from perfection, but now we're fallen. And it's as if we have this lingering memory of where we came from, and we long to get back to that place where we came from. We long to return to our true home. You know, a few years ago, a book came out. It was called A Long Way Home. And it was later turned into a movie, and the movie won some awards at film festivals. It's called Lion. If you've, maybe some of you have seen it. 
It's an autobiography. It's the true story of a man who, when he was five years old, he was born in, and raised in India until he was five. And so he's in India, and it's a true story. He fell asleep on a train in India, and it was a decommissioned train. And this train carried him through the night over a thousand miles away from his home, and it dropped him off in Calcutta. And he didn't know where he was from. In Calcutta, they speak Bengali. He spoke a different language. People, he couldn't communicate with anybody. He didn't know his address. He didn't even know his mom's name. He only knew her as mom, of course. And so he ends up in an orphanage. And then he's later adopted by an Australian family. And he grew up in Australia. But when he got to be in his 20s, he became obsessed with these memories that he had. He became obsessed with finding his way back home. And even though he had no idea where his home was, he no longer spoke the language, but he had these lingering memories, these flashes, these pictures, these very faint recollections. And so what he did is he ended up using Google Earth. And based on these faint memories that he had from his time when he was five years old, he found this village and he went back there and he actually found his mom who was still alive. But that's kind of like us, right? We have these lingering memories. It's like we know these things. We're where we came from and what, we're, what we were created for. We all have this deep sense that we were made for more than just 80 years here on this dusty planet filled with sweat and toil and frustration and heartache. Deep down, we all believe that we were made for greater things, that we were made for light and life and beauty and higher things. That's why all of our, greater, our greatest stories that we tell are about good conquering over evil. They're about love that never ends, these heroic feats, because we have this lingering memory of home, and we long to get back to that place. And that's why nothing in this world will ever satisfy us. Notice what the rest of this verse says there in Romans chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. It says, The creation, us, were subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, God's purpose was subjecting us to frustration in this life is so that your frustration would lead you to him. Follow that frustration all the way to the top and it will lead you to him. With the Jewish people, God gave them a religious system which could only give them temporary relief. Like all of us, they desired to be clean. And God gave them a system that would make them clean, but only partly clean and only temporarily. They desired to be right with God, and God gave them a system which would do that for them temporarily and only in part. The system was designed to create in them a sense of frustration. Why can't I ever get truly clean? What must I do to become fully clean? What must I do to become truly good, to be truly right with God? And if they allowed it, if they followed that frustration all the way to the end, it would lead them to God who would tell them, okay, you want to be truly clean? You want to find a way to be right with me forever? I'm making a way. I'm going to send you a true priest, the ultimate priest, and he will make the ultimate sacrifice. I'm coming. Look for that. Put your hope in that. And that same principle is true for you and me as well. If you will follow your frustrations all the way to the top, all the way to the end, they will lead you to God. And in Him, and in Him alone, will the deepest longings of your heart find their solution. There is a way to get back home, in other words. And that brings us to our final point, which is the answer to all the riddles. 
If you read the Old Testament, you find that, like I said, it creates a lot more questions than it gives you answers for. Melchizedek's a perfect example. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? How did he become a priest of the Most High God? And we get no answers. And then as you go through the Old Testament, there are more and more of these kind of things as you go through. For example, God says that he's going to send a Savior into the world. At one point, he says that this Savior will be a conquering king. But at another point, he says the Savior will be a priest. Now, how can that be? Because according to the Jewish system, you couldn't be both. You could either be a king or a priest, but you couldn't be a king and a priest. How does that work? And then you get to this, this Messiah, this Savior, and it says, God says at one point, the Messiah, the Savior, will be God himself. He will be divine. But then right after it says that the Messiah is going to be a child who will be born. Now, how can that be? Which one is it? Is it going to be God or is it going to be a person? And it says that this Messiah, he's going to be a king who will reign forever on the throne of David. But then it says that he will be a servant who will suffer and die for the sins of the people. These are like two completely different things. They seem completely contradictory. They can't both be true. And then there's this whole thing about justice and mercy, right, with the priest and the king. God says, I'm, I'm like a king. I'm like a judge. I'm completely just. I give people exactly what they deserve, nothing less, nothing more. And he says, I will by no means overlook sin or wrongdoing. I will judge and punish it all without exception. And then he says in the next breath, but I'm full of mercy. Well, mercy means not giving someone who's guilty the judgment they deserve. So which one is it? They can't both be true. Is God just or is he merciful? So many questions and no solutions. But then we meet this incredible person named Jesus. And in Jesus, we have the answer to all of the riddles. That's what this section is about right here. In verse 19, he says, in Jesus, we have a better hope because through him, we can draw near to God. Verse 20, he says, this was God's plan all along. If you'd just been paying attention, he said he's going to send another priest just like Melchizedek, one who's both a king and a priest, one who's greater than Abraham, one who's greater than the Levitical priesthood, one who lives forever. Verse 22, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 23 and 24, unlike human priests, Jesus is a priest forever. Verse 25, therefore, Jesus can save us to the uttermost if we come to God through him, because he is uniquely qualified. Verse 26, he is holy. He is innocent. He's exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, and here's the key. He is a priest who sacrificed himself. He sacrificed himself. He's the judge who brought judgment upon himself. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying that Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. How can God be both just and merciful? Because he, the judge of all the earth, became one of us, and he took the judgment for all of our sins upon himself. He, as the ultimate priest, offered up himself, verse 27 says, as the perfect sacrifice. He's the answer to all the riddles. And let me tell you this, Jesus is the answer to all the riddles of your life as well. It is only in him that you can become clean. It is only in him that you can become right with God. It is only in him that the deep longings of your heart will ever find their satisfaction and fulfillment. And because of that, it is only in him that you can ever truly rest. St. Augustine put it this way. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let me encourage you today to come to Jesus and know him as both your king and your priest. He's your priest who sacrificed himself for you to pay the price for your sins, to cleanse you and make you right with God. Jesus, like Melchizedek with Abraham, 
Jesus is your high priest who bestows a blessing upon you. Not only does he forgive your sins, but he becomes your righteousness. He becomes your worthiness. He becomes your beauty. He becomes your glory. He makes you beautiful so that when God looks at you, he is pleased with you and he delights in you. And let me ask you this in closing. Will you receive this blessing from him? Will you receive this blessing from him? He alone is uniquely qualified to be the savior you need. And if you put your trust in him and what he did for you, you can be full of hope and you can have great confidence because he is able to save you to the uttermost. Once you've come to Jesus as your high priest, don't stop there. Go to that next step and know him as your king. In other words, bow your knee before him and say, you gave your life for me. And now in response to that, with thankfulness in my heart, I give my life to you. Because it's only in you that all the riddles of this world and all the riddles of my life will find their answer. So I encourage you to do that today. Look to Jesus as your priest and as your king. Amen? Lord, we thank you that at this Advent season, Lord, as we remember your coming into the world, Lord, truly we can remember why you came. Lord, thank you that you are our priest. Thank you that you are our king. I pray that we would know you as both. Lord, as the one who made the greatest sacrifice, who sacrificed yourself, and also as the king before whom we bow down, the one who we say, Lord, have your way in my life. And we pray all of these things, Lord, that these things would be true in our lives and in our hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.